1: As we start in this message, too, in our study of this great letter to the elect exiles of Asia Minor from Peter near the end of his life, living confidently in a world of uncertainty, living confidently in a world of uncertainty. One song from the 80s asks this penetrating question What have you done for me lately? In this song, a young lady is lamenting that though her boyfriend was at first attentive, romantic, and caring when they first started dating, he is now the exact opposite. He's forgetting that they've made plans. He's neglecting their relationship. And the song hits all the right notes for many people who are tired, frustrated, and angry with the current state of their relationship. We always want more. No one likes to feel neglected or wasting time with someone who's taken advantage of them. And this song captures the mindset of those who are starting to look elsewhere for happiness and fulfillment. They are finally realizing the false promises of their suitors, or maybe it's even used by those who are seeking to draw someone away from a current relationship. Another one, what's in your wallet? You know that phrase. It's a popular tagline from an advertising campaign for Capital One and it promotes credit cards. The commercials tout the benefits of using their credit cards because the more you use them, the more benefits you accrue. It attempts to entice you to compare their services and benefits with what you currently have. Their whole plan is to make you desire their cards more than what you have currently. It's ingenious as it banks on the common human desire to get more for your buck or to get in on the action. If others are getting and enjoying more benefits than you, then you are not happy. Now, both of these scenarios are based on the concept that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. They are calling for you to consider your current situation, observe other uh, options, and then desire what others have. They want to cause doubt in your current situation and be uncertain about the services you are receiving from the present company or suitors. In many ways, this is what Peter has been warning his readers about to be wary of. Those false teachers who, by their teaching and their conduct, will try to entice Christians to abandon the teachings and the moral examples of Jesus. Now, last week in our overview of 2 Peter, we discovered that Peter writes to encourage the elect exiles of Asia Minor to remember what they have been taught in order to recognize the false teachers that are infiltrating their churches. Now, Peter stresses three things that you might recall. Number one, the importance of the inspiration of Scripture. And in several weeks, we'll look at that. And then we're going to get to the doctrine of the personal return of Christ. It's very important. And then Peter stresses the command to holy living in light of eternity. Now, as we read last week, Peter spent more time in this letter of 2 Peter listing the sinful practices and behaviors of the false teachers than their actual teachings. Probably the opposite of what you and I do. We would list the doctrines that are false and we would list the teachings in which they are wrong. But in this case, he's spending more time listing their behaviors and actions to prove that they are disqualified to not only be considered Christian teachers, but actually Christians at all. Surely Peter is recalling that Jesus taught them to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus went on to say that you will recognize these false teachers, these wolves, by their what? By their fruits? Fruits? Let's say that By their fruits. Okay, I just want to make sure you're waking with me here on this as we go on. Pastor Mark Dever summarizes Peter's warning and instructions to the believer. And this is very important. This is what we need to get as we go through 2 Peter, is that Peter's instructions to Christians is that living as a Christian helps me to know that I am a Christian. It also helps us to recognize false confessions. Consider this. Put yourself in the mindset of these Christians, these believers in the first century. After hearing the wonderful news of the gospel, you abandon everything to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Your eyes have been opened to the truth of the absurdity of idol worship, the reality of the curse of sin and death, and the futility of trying to appease a holy, righteous God through your own merit. In joy, you readily put aside all your old thoughts and behaviors and habits to gain the treasure of knowing Christ. Yet in doing so, you have put yourself in direct opposition to the beliefs and practices of your family, neighbors, and community. Your decision has real-world consequences as your family considers disowning you, your neighbors avoid you, and your business suffers from opposition. You attend the daily and weekly assembly with other believers who are also struggling with the same experiences of living in a world that is hostile to your faith. You are praying for strength together to endure the various trials that you and other Christians face daily. And like Paul, you pray for deliverance from suffering, only to hear God say, my grace is sufficient. Your business is failing, your neighbors no longer invite you over, and your family avoids you. You're trying to live Christ-like in a world that finds your transformation interesting, curious, and moral, but also unsettling, provocative, and strange. You have become the target of abuse, slander, and accusations of treason against the Roman government. You're not sure of how much longer you can continue to live this life of pleasing God. Then comes along a man who begins teaching a doctrine of Christ that is different, but yet not totally different, but just a new perspective on Christ. He contends that the apostles were not telling the whole truth about the teachings and instructions of Jesus. They had a hidden agenda. They insist that you don't have to fully abandon your old lifestyle and that in reality you can enjoy life to the fullest. God wants you to be happy, right? As long as you don't hurt anyone else, you can do what you want. You're not convinced. But after observing their life and behavior that at one time seemed wrong, and disobedient to God's word. You see how they are growing the church. They're influencing people, and they're accepted by the masses, and this causes confusion, and you begin to doubt all that you've been taught. You begin to be uncertain about your life choices, and you find yourself missing the liberty of living life on your own terms. You're tempted to compromise in all your decisions to follow Christ. Maybe I truly don't have to deny all and flick up my cross and follow Him. The seeds of doubt have been sown, and uncertainty begins to drive roots deep into your mind and heart. This may even describe you today. definitely describes many churches and Christians today. Like the first century church, you and I are not immune to the satanic attack on the life-changing message of the gospel and the full benefits of salvation to combat this heresy and this dangerous teaching, Paul reminds them and you and I today of the power of God and His gift of salvation. So with that, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It's here on the monitor. If you don't have your Bible, again, I want to encourage you, if you do not have one, please let us know. and We'd love to get a, a copy of God's Word in your hand. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 3 and 4 of the first chapter. Peter writes that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Let's pray. Father, so open up our minds and hearts, and I pray that you would be with me as I speak. Uh, quell this cough that's uh, rising up. Lord, let there not be any distractions, but Father, let us have attentive minds and hearts and ears. Let us hear what you have gladly. Lord, let us debate and challenge ourselves with as your Holy Spirit works within our heart. May it find deep root. And Lord, I pray that we would respond in the way that you've called us to. As this is your appointed time, as we will stand one day in front of you to give account of these very moments of when your word was open. And shared. Give us wisdom. Let us understand the difference between my mere opinion and your word and your truth. And Father, may you just be glorified in the reading and the teaching of your word. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Peter, near the end of his life, he desires to warn and protect fellow Christians from the dangerous doctrines of the false teachers that are infiltrating the churches. Not only does he write how believers can identify these false teachers, remember, look at their words, look at their actions, but he also reminds them of the foundation on which Christians can withstand that corrupting influence. He knows that these false teachers are going to sow seeds of discord in the church by questioning the importance of living godly. The Apostle Paul noted the importance of this endeavor when he wrote to Titus, one of my favorite verses, Titus 2, 11 through 13 where he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's the call you and I have today waiting as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until that day Christ comes, we are to live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. Why? Because He gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. For this is what God has called us to. Dr. Steve Lawson writes that your godliness, and get this, he says, your godliness is more important than your giftedness. That's interesting, because we always think, well, what's my giftedness? What's my talents? What's my abilities? What is it that I can bring to the church? But Dr. Steve Lawson saying through Scripture actually says that what the church needs most is your godliness. Do you know what your spouse, your husband and wife needs more than anything else? They need your godliness. And parents, what your children need is your godliness. What your neighbors, your employer, what we need is more of your godliness rather than just your giftedness. Not that that's not important, but in the scheme of it, God has called us to godliness. He says your godliness is more important than your giftedness and your maturity, get this, and your maturity more than even your ministry. What a wonderful phrase. He, he captures in that one sentence the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Peter had opened his greeting by stating that his prayer was for them to experience the grace and peace that comes through the knowledge of God the Father and Jesus our Lord. Now, knowledge of God and Jesus compels you and I to live lives of godliness. And I think that's why we don't see churches and pews filled with people living a life of godliness, because we don't have a true knowledge of who God is and who Jesus is. Yet these false teachers are causing the believers to question the command to be holy as God is holy. Meaning that you and I are to be set apart from the world, that we are to live differently from the world we too have succumbed to satanic attack to live as the world that that nowadays there's there's not much danger or difference of what you and I watch or what how we speak and how we live our lives we use our money and spend our money and and our time and energy very similar to what the world is their their standards and and their desires and dreams and aspirations really are ours which is opposite of what he tells us in titus 2 11 through 13 I don't know about you, but sometimes, many times, I do not feel saved. I struggle with the constant battling of fighting sin. I don't necessarily doubt my salvation, but many times I doubt my commitment to Christ. And it causes me to waver. There are times, even as a pastor, I just consider giving up. Maybe not giving up the ministry, but just, Lord, would you just come? I just don't think I can take this any longer. This is too difficult. Living a life that is pleasing to God is exhausting. It can be difficult. And when that comes, I realize that I'm living the gospel life wrong, incorrectly. Because I, I recognize scripture tells me to rest in Him, to come to Him. But many times our lives becomes just about action and trying to live godly so much by ourselves. And sometimes it just becomes easier to take the low road, to allow myself to compromise my beliefs, to stop finding sin or to seek for loopholes. Even as a pastor, you wonder as churches are filled up, driving here, churches are filled up that have made the wrong decisions about what Christianity is. And sometimes I think, well, maybe I should just be preaching a different message. Maybe we should quit speaking about the gospel in these terms and maybe we can compromise a little bit, just maybe not make it so much of an issue. But obviously we understand that we cannot do that. But it is a temptation. It's a consideration, as fleeting as it is. I think you understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about denying Christ or leaving with the faith, but just allowing myself to question, even for just a moment, Does Scripture really mean that I cannot fill in the blank? Does Scripture really mean that I should fill in the blank? Some of you make that decision every week when you decide whether or not to come on Sunday. Maybe the Bible doesn't really mean do not neglect the meeting of yourself. Maybe it doesn't mean that I love or respect my wife and husband, as it says. Or maybe it's okay just to entertain myself this way i believe that's what these first century believers are struggling with someone is coming and they're giving them an out a new way of living that is more carefree and fun spirituality without religion God without godliness, happiness outside the commands of God. We are looking for that, whether we say it or not. And I tell you, you can find people who will give you that and much more and try to give you the stamp that says, oh, yeah, you're still going to heaven. No more doubting if you're good enough or measure up. Just enjoy yourself. That's what God really wants anyway. However, Peter insists that the believers... Can live confidently in a world of uncertainty by holding on to that salvation that was given to them as a gift from God. In other words, we we begin to doubt that we begin to consider different ways of what the scripture says because we've lost hold of the beauty of what salvation really has given to us. And many times, like I said earlier, we think that we gotta continue to work to please God. I gotta do this and I gotta do that. We may not have believed in work salvation, but we believe in working really hard after our salvation to keep it. I come from a background uh, growing up that was very similar to that. They may deny it, but that's in essence what, what comes out of it. That confidence comes in understanding, knowing, and embracing, and living out our salvation. In this next passage chap- of chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, we're going to see three ways that God serves as a foundation for a life of godliness. How we know that this is confident that how God has called us to live and that we are able to live this way and that we'll be able to, to combat those false teachers. We're going to consider the first one today. So with that, it's not on the board if you're taking notes. The first way that you and I can see that God's grace serves as a foundation for a life of godliness is that God has made divine provision for our salvation. God has made divine provision for our salvation. Let's look at verse 3 once again. It's here in your Bible, not on the screen. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things. You may want to underline that circle that all things that pertain to life and godliness. The first point Peter makes is the divine provision for our salvation. You and I do not add anything to the equation. God Himself has acted in His infinite power to accomplish something, something only He could accomplish and what human ability could not accomplish on its own. Now, I don't believe I need to spend a lot of time convincing you of that point. We have over the years thoroughly shown through Scripture how our need for a Savior and our inability to save ourselves you should know that by now but we're reminded that is by grace that you and i have been saved through faith and this is not our own doing it is a gift of god not a result of works what you and i do need to be reminded is we need to remind ourselves of this morning that is that this gift of salvation effectively accomplishes something positive in our life let me say that again because that was a mouthful you and I need to be reminded that salvation actually was effective in accomplishing something in our life today, right now. We know intellectually, we know in our mind, that salvation saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day it will save us from the presence of sin. Yet many times we just focus on the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, forgetting the middle part of the power of sin. Christ came to destroy the works of Satan. Too many times we think of salvation as just some eternal benefit. We look at, well, I've been saved from sin, and then one day I have eternity. Yet Dr. Thomas Schreiner writes that eternal life is not merely the experience of bliss, but it also involves a transformation so that believers are morally perfected and made like God. We need to recognize that salvation is more than just a one-time event and then a future event, but it's something that's happening even today at this moment. It's a long process until we go be with the Lord and He comes for us. Now, there's nothing missing in our salvation. At the time of our conversion, God has given all things that we need to live lives of holiness And godliness. Now, that does not mean that once we say a prayer, we become perfect Christians or that we will not struggle with sin. No. It means that within us, God has already pre installed, if you would, in a way, everything that you and I need to become like Christ. And here's why I say that because too many times believers are looking or anticipating a second experience to make them more holy. It could be speaking in tongues, impressions, visions, and dreams that deepen our experience. I think that's why so many books today that write of people dying and going to heaven and coming back are so popular. We want something more. We want to believe that there's some other type of experience missing. And so we're always looking for something to make us more godly and holy. This type of thinking leads to dangerous books like Jesus Calling and all the sequels it has had in which Jesus supposedly speaks directly to this author, this lady. Unfortunately, we are looking for some type of special spiritual recipe to add to our salvation. But let me share with you, God has divinely provided all that you and I need to live a life in which we grow in maturity like Christ. There is nothing else to add to the recipe. Brothers and sisters of Christ, do not fall into this trap of looking for special emotional movements and moments to lift you up higher. God has given us everything we needed. When he called us and saved us and adopted it as his own, he did not leave anything out. Christ's divine power is the source of our godliness. Do not allow uncertainty to lead you to doubt the power of salvation to be transformed. And I say this because for many of us, we're saying that there's no way, I don't feel like I'm any different from the day I I accepted Jesus until now. So maybe it's time for me just to quit and just go ahead and just compromise in some ways of life, just to make life easier for us. But Paul wrote that if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. He says the old has passed away, the new has come. One theologian says the genuine Christian is eternally secured in his salvation and they will persevere and grow because he has received everything necessary to sustain eternal life through Christ's power. So we do not have to be open to this movement or these teachings that tell us, you know what, you can just take it easy. Uh, There's another... uh, it's not a heresy, but it's another phrase that growing up that just turned out bad. Just let go and let God, you know. It's, I think it was the prequel to Jesus take the wheel type thing. You know, just let go and let God. Just, it's, it just say the prayer and then just let go and God will grow you. Well, obviously we know through Scripture that there's, that's wrong. God has called us to obey. He's called us to pursue holiness. So we're to do that. And that's difficult. The decision to do that, the attempt to do that, will cost you. I know that there are some of you here today that your desire to please God by living a godly life, to obey His commands, has cost you something. For some, it might be, oh, I've lost hours at work because I won't work on Sunday, or I won't work during small groups. Some of you, it's cost you in your family because they don't understand and truly accept it. I tell you, anything that's worth It needs sacrifice. Peter goes on to state that this power, this divine power, this provision of God comes through the knowledge of Him. Again, what is that knowledge? It's not not an intellectual knowledge, but it's an experience. It's conversion. It's when we come to know Christ. The gospel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, that the gospel gives me knowledge with respect to my state and my condition by nature. It's understanding what the gospel is, who God is, who man is, the problem, how Christ solves that problem, and then how faith is the key that opens up salvation. The knowledge that Peter is writing of is not intellectually knowing all the Scripture and being able to give it back verbatim, but it's an encounter with Jesus at conversion. You might recall the conversion story of Saul, who then became Paul. He was religious to be of of everyone. He was a great lawyer who knew the law. And his zealousness and his desire to please God, he sought to wipe out those Christians, those people who were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed he was doing God's work. And he became a religious terrorist, so to speak, in which he was going into the homes, knocking down the doors, pulling them by force, and causing them to either recant or be in prison, or in some cases, give their lives. But yeah, we know the story on the road to Damascus. He had a great conversion story, a light came, one that only he could, he, well, not the light, he, the light and then the, the voice that only he could hear blinded him. And he had a real-life encounter, a life-changing moment. In that moment, not only did he have the, hear the, the words of, of Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? But he was given everything that he needed at that time to become whom he would be. The Apostle Paul, whose life really changed dramatically, but yet not his personality. All his giftedness was the same. He became the great lawyer of Christianity. He became the great religious zealous who wanted to please God. He just put it to a new endeavor. Like Paul, you and I had a conversion story, maybe not as as dramatic. Uh, I think that's something that you and I wish we had At many times. I've heard people who would get up and, and give their testimony, and they would demone the fact that they did not cry and break down. I don't know how many of you had those type of experiences. Some have. And so it's very difficult sometimes. That's why we struggle many times with doubt and uncertainty about our salvation. But like Paul, the gospel awakens us up to the reality of our situation. In Romans 8, Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh. And to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the Bible says, is hostile to God. That is how you and I are born. That is our default setting. For God does not, or for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Without this great awakening, this conversion, this, this, this interaction with Jesus, you and I are actually in ignorance and bliss. To put it in today's popular terms, the power of the gospel to convert us is like taking the red pill from the Matrix. The red pill in the movie represents the choice of knowledge, of freedom, of adversity, and the brutal truth of reality. Before God called us, we were like the world who Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The red pill of the gospel awakens us to the reality of who God is and who you and I are and what Jesus has done without that knowledge. But yet God in His divine providence has given us that knowledge. It changes our perspectives. It gives us a new heart. In Peter's first letter, he reminded them that it was God who called us And that once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy by calling us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, if you were a Baptist, you would say amen at this point, because you have to. There's got to be something when you read those. And I would challenge you here today, if you're hearing those words, and it's not moving you and stirring you, then I would consider today where you are in your Christian life. Because these are the words of life. I love that song that's wooing us. God is wooing us. He is awaking us to who He is. At conversion, God enables you and I to see the beauty and the loveliness of Jesus' moral character and not in the way that the world sees it. Oh, yes, we should be more like Jesus because He was so good and kind. But we're seeing Him for who He was, the one who emptied Himself and He came to earth and became man and died for us, in comparison to our own moral character that is ugly and hideous. We see the beauty and the loveliness of Jesus. It's only through the gift of a new heart that's unblinded by sin and ignorance that makes the perfection of Jesus attractive. They could not see Jesus the way you and I see Jesus. And I pray today, do you see Jesus that way? It's attractive. This is beautifully depicted in the words of the great song Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. Many of you know him. We sing the song ourselves. He was a slave trader, first impressed into the Royal Navy in England, and then years later would become a slave on a slave ship and eventually uh, uh, be the, the captain of several slave ships until there was a violent storm at sea one day. And he called out for mercy. And at that point, he says, I was converted. Now, it took him several years to get out of slavery to see what it really is. But you know these words. You don't have to sing them, but we can just read them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Without God, you and I would never even know this knowledge. People don't even know that they need God. They see no reason to have God. They don't believe they need a Savior. The call of Christ is defective. All who He chooses, He calls, converts, justifies, adopts, sanctifies, and glorifies. As Paul writes, those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of God. And these first century Christians, as they're falling under the sway of these false teachers and prophets, They fall to the sway, and they forget that God has called us to confirm to the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. And let me share with you, if you're here doubting in your Christian life of whether or not you can live godly and pursue holiness, he says those he called, he also justified. He made right with God. That's conversion. But those he also justified, he says that he will be glorified. That's when Christ comes. That's when He changes us. Until then, we're to be about God's work. As divine image bearers of Christ, you and I are called to live in harmony with God's own moral character. Too many professing Christians believe today that all they need to do is just ask Jesus in their heart. Say this simple prayer here. This simple prayer. Repeat after me. And you and I know those phrases. Maybe we've used them. Maybe we were saved under them. So I want to be careful with it. But we have to be careful in which we just make it some type of slogan or some type of spiritual saying. They criticize any expectation of true transformation as lordship salvation. God hasn't called us to be the Lord of our life just to save us. Demanding that all we need to do is just believe who Jesus is, that God does not really call us to obedience. Repentance was something for the Old Testament. It's something maybe for the millennium, but it's not for you and I. This has led to too many false conversions and has discouraged people who are not finding the grace and peace that's promised in Scripture. Salvation is more than just a declaration in the belief of Jesus. The world believes in Jesus. It's not enough. We need to live godly lives now anticipating the perfection that awaits when Christ returns. It's not enough to say that I have faith in Christ. No, now we must declare that I need to increase and strengthen my faith. James talks about this. We looked at it several years ago as we went through James. We do this by living in obedience to scriptures and to the commands of Christ. As we continue, we go on to the next verse. We see that by God's divine power and through the knowledge that God has granted to us His precious and very great promises. These promises are numerous and life-changing. We couldn't list all of them. Some of them are forgiveness of sin and an unconditional pardon. It's life and peace with the Holy Spirit as our helper, our counselor, and our guide. We receive eternal life along with a clear conscience. We have help with weakness, with power and strength. These are just a few of the benefits that you and I get with salvation. Scripture goes on to entail many more, and we could spend more of our time meditating on those great promises. And I encourage you, you and I, we should. One of the greatest is found in 1 John chapter 3. It's here on the monitor, if you would look. John, the apostle, the one disciple whom Jesus loved, says, see what kind of love the Father has given us. That we should be called the children of God. We have a different relationship with God now. And we, so we are. The reason why the world does not, know, uh, does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children when? Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. Again, you're saying, well, well, that's in the future, but look what he says. And everyone who thus hopes in him, in that future bliss, purifies himself as he is pure. It's the wonderful gift. He gives us, like you would say, the drawing. It says, this is what it looks like. Now start working on it. Now, If you take me, we talked about this before, never give me something that I have to assemble. It will take forever, and it may not look exactly like the picture. And I always have things that are left over. We keep them over in a, a, we have a whole storage room that's just stuff that I have left over. But you look and you say, well, I can never make it like that. Well, never fear. Just be about the wrenches and the screwdrivers, doing what Christ has called following what Christ has, in the end, He will make it all look right. He will find the places that we did not insert correctly. Those places where it's just a little bit uneven. But you and I are be about the work of pursuing holiness, pursuing godliness. It's these precious and great promises that we become not only partakers of that divine nature going back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, but also serves as our motivation to live pure and holy lives. As he writes in verse 4, that you and I must remember that we have escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. Now, by writing that you and I have escaped the corruption, Peter does not mean that you and I now can become gods. This is not a Mormon teaching or a sinless perfection, some type of Wesleyan Methodist thing in which you and I can now be perfect. No, the Christian life is a lifetime struggle and battle with sin. What Peter means here is that you and I have escaped the decay that is a direct result of sin. Turn to Romans chapter 8, would you please with me? You guys know where that is, Romans chapter 8. Here in this passage, Paul writes of the decay that all of us face because of sin and how that will be resolved when Christ returns. So in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 21. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, speaking of believers, we've been suffering through the corruption, through the decay caused by sin. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as the Son, the redemption of our bodies. You and I must remember in our fight for the truth. Against those that would call us to a different type of liberty in which it's sinful. Sin has enslaved all of creation, man, animal, and even the very elements of nature to its corruption. The penalty of that sin is death, and through sin, or the penalty of that sin is death. The good news of salvation is that Christ comes to free us from the corruption of sin and that curse of death. The writer of Hebrews declares, <coughs> excuse me. The writer of Hebrews declares in Hebrews chapter 2:14 here on the monitor. He says, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Paul, or Peter here, now the writer here, here is telling him that, hey, we have been uh, uh, delivered from that lifelong slavery. Peter is calling them to remember that. You have escaped that corruption. You have escaped that decay, you are no longer enslaved to sin. And Peter, in a little bit, in chapter 2, is going to speak about that type of enslavement. How some believers, or those who at least profess Christ, were coming back and like dogs were returning to their vomit. God begins this by changing our desires, this this escaping, this delivering from, uh, from corruption. He begins this by changing our desires so that they no longer followed the worlds. The false teachers were living lives that were in direct opposition and contrary to the commands of Christ. They were going back into the enslavement. They were going back into the corruption, to those things that led to death. The Apostle John warns his readers in 1 John, again, once to the monitors. He tells us, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And you and I must understand this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, as a church, we have taken some stands with the culture and with society and even the political nature of some of the things that they're calling us to say that the scripture never says this. Or in this area, you must compromise. For some churches and pastors and Christians, it's cost them their business, their livelihood, money, social standing. For us, it hasn't touched us as much, but one day it should, or it may. But that does not call us to neglect these weighty things of salvation. For salvation is not just a forgiveness of sin and a pardon and an eternal home, but it's a call to follow after Christ. We cannot, it's not an option to say, well, I'll just give in for what Peter will tell us and what Paul tells us, the scripture will come. But that is not salvation at all. You and I must remember as he is reminding them that our desires have been transformed and that Christ is the power or Christ's power is the source of the believer's sufficiency and preservation. God has given all that you and I need to pursue holiness and godliness. We're not to look outside. We're not to succumb to that call to to not pursue it. But Peter desires for believers to live confidently in a world of uncertainty. To have confidence in the knowledge of God that multiplies the grace and peace. To combat the doubt that Satan tries to implant in our minds and hearts. Let's commit today to entrust ourselves to God the Father who has graciously provided all that you and I need now to live lives of godliness. For that's the salvation that He has given to you and I. That's the glory and the challenge that He has awakened in our hearts. Let's be resolute this morning to do so. With every head bowed and every eye closed as the worship team comes up, I want you to just take a moment to pause of what we talked about to consider His words For God wants you to understand that Satan seeks to paralyze you with doubt and uncertainty about God's word, about his goodness and his love for us. God wants you to believe that he has given you everything that you need to live a godly life and that he works within his children to protect and preserve them for eternity. God wants us to desire to please him by embracing his precious and very great promises and to follow him. God wants us to see through the false promises of the world and to reject the passions of this world and of any false gospel. God has called us today to follow Him. Would you pray and yes, God, and respond to the Holy Spirit's call this morning? Father, show us those areas and which we have compromised our salvation. Not that we may lose it, but Father, that we have given up, whether we've compromised or we've struggled, or that our mind is doubtful or uncertain about pursuing godliness. Father, we need to ask the questions, not, is, is, am I to live godly? It's, 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 we, we should ask, is this something that God would call us to do? in the things, in the ways we entertain ourselves, in the way we use our money, the way we use our our work, our career, our dreams, our aspirations? Is it marked with repentance, confession, and godly living? Father, we ask for protection that our church would not face these types of attacks from false teachers. I pray that we'd look and that way exposes those among us who truly profess you. Let us see the power of salvation to not only save, but also to transform. Father, renew our hearts this morning. Father, we pray that you would just expose any sin in our life. May we confess and repent from it. Father, as a church, may we come together to strengthen one another, to encourage one another to to lead these types of lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at faith at orangefilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangefilla.org.